in our uh, church here in the lectionary today is the Transfiguration. It's actually revisited a couple of times in the church year, but at this stage it gives us that glimpse that there is so much more to this person of Jesus than those who originally observed him as a baby, as a child growing up, and now and as he commences his public ministry. And the transfiguration is that moment in which that greater glory is just glimpsed and was uh, recalled and passed on afterwards by Peter, James and John. We're going to mark the transfiguration as we commence a new series looking at the book of Revelation. We're going to do it in a series of chunks throughout the year. And the first stage, as we look at the first five chapters of Revelation, will take us through the season of Lent. And in many ways, um, I'm really praying that this, using the book of Revelation, will give us um, a focus for our own Lenten journey as a wider church. And as part of that, we give up so we can focus. The whole idea of giving something up is not just that it's good to do in itself. It is so that we can dedicate ourselves to the question of observing what Jesus is about his person, his mission, and his call upon us. And that is what I'm praying that we at St Matthews will do for this period. And it'll coincide with the annual vestry meeting, which is the conclusion of Lent and as we enter into Holy Week. So there is an intentionality behind that that I will... Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how God uh, speaks to us in that space. Revelation is a challenging book to read, so much so that Martin Luther said, no, I can't even make sense of it. We'll leave it out of the Bible. Um, Yet uh, it is an incredibly profound and timely text once we have a better feel for what's going on. So part of this morning is just to locate Revelation, uh, when it was set, one of the big keys to making sense of it, and there is a really big key that once you get hold of it, it suddenly all comes together. And the nature of not only the, the genre, but also the message that lies behind it. I'm going to come back a little bit later around why I've chosen the title Revelation, Then and Now, Now and Then. I'll come back and unpack that in a few minutes. So first of all, locating this uh, amazing book of Revelation. It uh, takes us to the Roman Empire in the late first century. It's written of a high degree of code or symbolism. and in, uh, But just behind the surface of some of the symbols in the code is very clear references to the Roman world and in particular the Roman powers in which made up the, the world of the early church. So this wasn't some sort of cryptic jigsaw puzzle that no one could make sense of until the 21st century and suddenly someone works out how to put all the jigsaw together and what they come up with. Every generation has almost argued that's the case and every generation has almost got it wrong. It wasn't something hidden away. It was meaningful to the first hearers, very meaningful to the first hearers and continues to be so today. So we're looking at the Roman Empire in the late first century and in particular we're looking at the Roman province of Asia which is 
largely Western Turkey as we know it today. The Roman world was divided up into a whole series of provinces. Uh, the Romans perfected the art of government and uh, some of those provinces had their own armies, others weren't. Some were under the control of the Senate, others were under control of individuals, others had various forms of treaties with the Romans. But in particular, if you see just towards, uh, you see Italy, to the right of Italy you see uh, Macedonia and what we now call Greece, and then to the right of that you see Asia. So this is the area of Turkey that we're talking about and the uh, various remains of those seven churches uh, can be travelled. So there's one of the popular um, Christian tours that you can often book into is to go and visit the seven churches of um, Revelation. Within those seven churches... um, there is a distinctive character to that region. Um, There is uh, Ephesus was the major centre. Smyrna was a smaller centre. Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. In fact, the order of the seven churches as we have them um, described in Revelation 2 and 3 is pretty much the order that a postie would take or a courier, if they were going to do their trip, round trip of delivering um, letters or parcels, um, they would actually follow pretty much the same order that we have those letters. Around them is some significant um, geography, rivers, and, and uh, in particular the Lycus Valley. So where we see Laodicea, um, there's a valley that goes from Heopolis down to Colossae. That was one of the early centres for the growth uh, of the church. And uh, so these are churches in which um, it was known that uh, churches had become established. The other thing we also need to know that in each one of these centres and many others, the Roman imperial cult was on the rise. Temples were being built to the Roman emperors. This hadn't been done before. This was quite a new innovation. And the belief that the, uh, the emperors lived in the world of the gods unlike other humans. And that wasn't a very Roman thing. The Republic would not allow that. But the Roman Empire, which came in the first century, was moving at it in a big way. So we have the rise in emperor worship and the expectation that all dutiful citizens would get on board and behind it. They would provide the finance necessary in each uh, of these major centres to build these imperial temples to show the emperor that they are totally loyal. And for those who chose not to do so, would find themselves in very difficult positions in their communities. What do you mean you're not supporting this? Uh, This is something that we do because we are patriotic. We want to show the emperor how much we support them. So persecution was upping um, amongst the churches. To give you an idea of that, this is the emperor Domitian, and he did have a bloody nose as well. But uh, Domitian um, was believed to be Nero re- com- comes to life again. Nero Redivinus was one of his titles. That Nero, who was incredibly popular with, a popu- with the, the population, not so with the Senate and the aristocracy. Uh, one recent scholar, Tom Hollander, who's a, a, a great Roman historian, um, said that 
Uh, Nero was pretty much a Donald Trump type of figure. Uh, he put on breads and circuses and big displays and things and had enormous popular support. Um, and the whole reason that he was suppressed is that he had no respect for the, uh, the dignity of the Roman elite as well. And that was pretty much the role model that Domitian had taken on. The book of Revelation is most likely written in Domitian's time. And uh, it wasn't just his uh, striking presence. He also was the powerful hand that controlled the whole Mediterranean world, the whole Roman Empire was under his power. And to give you an idea of just the size of this, uh, that's the, uh, what it looks like. You can uh, visit it in um, the uh, museum in uh, Ephesus. That's a friend of mine um, to give an idea. So imagine a, this front and centre in a whole brand spanking new um, temple dedicated to the worship and the, and the uh, um, loyalty being given, pledged to the emperor was happening all across this region. And with that, as Christian believers were thinking, well, do we get on board with this? Is it okay for us to sort of cross our fingers and not you know, get involved? Or should we make a thing and say, no, we will not be part of this? Really press the question, to whom are you ultimately committed? Where is your true loyalty to be found? So alongside that, and over against it, the book of Revelation reveals a much bigger picture of reality. The heavens are opened up. Chapter 4 has this dramatic moment in which the, the doors of heaven are opened and those who hear and see it by faith get a glimpse of this greater power. You think Rome is powerful. You haven't seen anything until you recognise the power of the God of all creation all creation recognises and worships. So that's setting something of the world of revelation. So it's then when I come back to that theme, then and now, now and then. Sometimes when we jump into revelation, it seems so otherworldly and we think, can't make sense of this at all. This is not our own world. Until you recognise that living in a world with major superpowers and major figures and personalities who are claiming devotion and that I am the only one who can bring you peace and stability in the world in which pledging loyalty to a figure, not just a movement, is part of our own world. And it isn't just overseas. Those voices are also in our own culture, in our own nation. We recognise that this is our world. There's a lot of similarity between the first century where the, the churches were increasingly minority groups against a much more powerful, wider society and culture that viewed the churches with disparagement and with suspicion and were keen to push the church to the margins. The message that we hear in Revelation is a message for our time, for us today. A couple of hints around how we approach Revelation. Um, and this is just a few guiders as we begin to hear the readings as they progress. First of all, Revelation is a drama more than a text. The original readers didn't have a text in front of them that they could stop and pour over this word and that word. It was performed. 
fact, we'll see in a few moments that John has said, blessed is the one who reads these words. Reads them. Alan's already done so. Alan was blessed. He's had a chance to read from Revelation 1. Blessed is the one who reads it. It's a drama that we should allow to roll over. So it's almost like we enter into the world of Lord of the Rings. And Lord of the Rings, you can read it, but when you imagine it, you feel the drama, the moments, the, 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 all that's sweeping over that space. You don't try and overanalyze. So exactly what's going, who's this person? And you, know, you allow it to, to shape the world around us. In particular, as we go through Revelation, I'll be using this image and I'll unpack it a bit more in coming weeks. But imagine you're stepping into a theatre and initially as you come into the theatre, it's in dark. And then seven stages are lit up, little stages around the theatre. And each of those stages is representing a different church. What I'm going to be suggesting is imagine those seven churches of Asia were the seven Anglican churches of the eastern suburbs of Adelaide. Because it's actually pretty much the same thing. They knew each other. Imagine these little stages are set up one at a time and the spotlight goes on each of those seven churches of the eastern suburbs of Adelaide. And we're one of those churches. God says, I know everything about you. There is nothing about you that I do not know. These things I commend. These things I want you to change. Some of these things I detest. And that is announced to all the churches. And then suddenly a great big stage opens up. And in this scene, it was so powerful that the other smaller spotlight scenes seem so small in comparison. And it is the great heavenly scene of God going about the mission of God and all creation gathered around and people of God's, God's people from the Old Testament and the New Covenant are all gathered around that space. And suddenly we recognise this is the world we find ourselves. And that is how revelation works. Feel the drama. Don't get caught up so much by the, the words. It is performed rather than dissected. You know, it's a bit like live theatre. The audience don't come with a remote control. You know, sometimes when we're at home and we get so used to, oh, I missed that bit, or I dozed off for this bit, I'm just going to replay that last 30 seconds. If you go to live theatre, you can't do that. You know, you can't put your hand up and say, sorry, can you just replay that scene again? I just missed that bit. Revelation is like that. You can't pause it. It's got to roll over you. Thirdly, it is evocative rather than literal. It's designed to be in that evocative space of lots of symbolism and characters that are representing bigger truths behind it. And finally, it is God's living word for every age, as it was in the first century, so also in the 21st century. We want to ask God to speak to us at this time in our life as a church, both personally and as a church community. And that is my prayer as we journey through these opening chapters through Lent, that our imagination will be opened. So this is a, um, an overview that I'm going to develop as we go, so um, there's a lot more to come. 
Where we start with our reading this morning, and Alan brought us, was the revelation of the Alpha and the Omega. God who was there before time and God who will be there at the end of time and what lies beyond it and everything in between. I made some reflections on that on the, uh, the stepping out piece. I, do, I draw attention to it. As we live in times of change, the only ground for assurance we will find is not anything that we can contrive. It is the God throughout the ages who is constant. That is where we take the words of that wonderful hymn, is the rock of ages. It was there for previous generations and will be there for future generations. And we pray that we find comfort and shelter here and now. And that Alpha and Omega speaks to those seven churches. But it, wasn't, it didn't just stay with those seven churches. Those seven churches become a lens for all churches throughout the ages. We see ourselves in those seven churches. And all churches throughout the ages have elements that speak for us as well. So it isn't just about those churches. It's about our church. And the challenge does become, and the question that I will pose is, what is Christ saying to us as a church? If the report card is put up, and there'll be more about this next week, for St Matthew's Kensington, and God says, I know everything about you. I know your history. I know your conversations. I know what happens in private. I know what happens in public. I know all of it. And I commend these things. But these things you need to attend to. And that's a question I really want us to sit with. In each of those, there is an invitation that follows. And the invitation is, and if you hear these words and do them, there is life. That is the invitation. More about that next week. So just a touch of it, how we see it already in the reading we had. The revelation from Jesus Christ. The word from is actually ambiguous. It's also the revelation of Jesus Christ. It actually includes Jesus in the revelation. In fact, he is the centre of the revelation that also then reveals the nature of the world as we try to make sense of it. Today's world, as much as it was in earlier times. And as I said before, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That is to say, reads it in the gathering of God's people. So those who are on the Bible reading roster for coming weeks, you'll be blessed. We have that assurance. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. That is my Lenten prayer, that this season won't be just a season that comes and goes. It'll be a season in which we do learn, as I suggest in the sheet, the possibilities of stepping out. Stepping out, walking by faith, in step with the Spirit. And as it continued, and as I said, just locating what I've said, it isn't just what I've made up. <laughs> it's there in what we've just heard. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace summarises the gospel message. It comes in the grace of God and it's expressed in receiving that grace of God, not because of anything that we have done to deserve it, not because we can put our hand up and say, yep, St. Matt's has been so wonderful, we deserve this grace. 
No, it starts with the opposite. Lord, we recognise of how unworthy we are of that grace. All of us, personally and as a church, we live by the grace of God. And to be honest, as I've been reflecting on this passage just um, in the past week, and my sense of where it's going to take us as we go and follow through this in the year to come, it is by the grace of God that we find hope. It is the grace of God that can transform and can take lives that are messy and decisions and choices and events that shouldn't have happened and could have been done better and all the things that we can point to. What I'll be suggesting is that there is a greater narrative rather than some of the competing narratives. I do believe that as Sir Matthews looks to the future, we need to discover being released from the past. Things are not what they used to be. There are some wonderful things in the past that we celebrate, but we can't go back there. There's also been some seasons in the past that I've heard a whole variety of narratives about what happened and who said what and all these different types of things. And it continues to choke us. The thing I hear more than anything else from a lot of people is we don't want to go back there. The only way is forward. And the only way forward is in the grace of God. Releasing grievances. Setting aside narratives and allowing God's narrative, God's future, guide us forward. It's in a beautiful phrase. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is, is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne, and we will see more about this wider reality, heaven that we are praying breaks out upon earth, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. No one has done more, is doing more, or will do more for this world than Jesus. That is why we are Christians. That is why we stand and praise and worship. And our purpose of gathering together is to remind each other of that foundational truth. Who is worthy, the question is asked, to open these scrolls, to step into the space. And we'll see when we come to chapter 6. The lion, the lion of Judah, who actually now is a, is a lamb, is a slain lamb. He alone is worthy. And in that we find comfort. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That is true for us personally and can I say it emphatically, that is true of us as a church community where we collectively are willing to repent of our part in whatever needs to be changed going forward. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Made us to be a kingdom and priest. To be a kingdom and priest is actually to be mission agents. To be priest isn't a private deal with God. It is to be the go-between people, between God and the world. That is our calling. That is our commission. To him 
is the one who has been talked about. So John talks about two great prophecies in the Old Testament, one from the book of Daniel, the other from the book of Zechariah. He is coming with the clouds. That is to say, this is heaven breaking out upon earth. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Those who had no time for Jesus, who dismissed him as irrelevant, as not of any great consequence, will mourn because he is the one. And we have God's word on it. And then it finishes, this one, Jesus, is one and the same. The God who is, who was, and is to come is the one who invites us into his presence and to place our lives before him and not demission and not the emperors of our world today, not anything else that will claim our loyalty, but before him. Amen. Actually, no, I'm going to finish. This is the slide. I wasn't sure I was going to pop in, but I will do it. This is a heads up of where it's heading, the questions it's raising. It raises the questions for us as we journey. Questions of loyalty. Who or what do you worship? Only you can answer that. Only I can answer it of myself. Our God is still too small. Let us pray as this revelation is opened up that our picture of God just gets bigger and bigger. Truly awesome. Our vision is way too limited of what we would like, what we think the future is. Our faith, to be honest, in the Western world is too comfortable. The church is growing where it is struggling, where it is persecuted, where it really costs something. And that is where the greatest growth is happening at the moment around the world. Our ears are too selective. And our spiritual expectations are too weak. This isn't just for us. This is for the church in the Western world today. It is a sobering moment that we are living through and we are invited to have our place before God in that space. Amen.